Can I ask you a couple of questions today? And the first question that I would like to ask you is, did you come to our meeting house today with a sense of gladness in your heart? Is the Lord's Day, a, is it a day of gladness for you? Is uh, especially our gathering together as a congregation on the Lord's Day, is this a time of gladness for you? Are you glad on the Lord's Day for the gospel? Are you glad on the Lord's Day for the gospel promises? Are you glad for the hope that the gospel preaches? Are you glad for those certain expectations that the Lord has assured you of? We read of the believers in Acts chapter 2. They are described there as continuing daily with one accord in the temple. They were breaking bread from house to house. They were eating their food with, the text tells us, with gladness and simplicity of heart. Gladness, gladness of heart was a characteristic of those who were described as gladly receiving the apostolic preaching. The the gospel preaching was being received by them. They were believing it. Gladness of heart was the characteristic of those who had been baptized upon their professions of repentance and faith. Gladness of heart for those who had then been admitted to the membership and who then had been admitted to the Lord's Supper. Gladness of heart is the description of those people. And their gladness and their joy of heart can be yours as well today. We think of that day when our gladness will be full. But we have reason to be glad today. Are we not also among those who have gladly received the preaching of the apostolic word? Are we not among those who have gladly received the gospel with our own repentance and faith? Have we not also continued even to this very day? Have we not also continued together in praying together? But today ought to be a day of gladness because today Brian is to be, is to be baptized He will join us in our membership, and He will join us in our receiving of the Lord's Supper. And if you have been baptized upon your own profession of repentance and faith, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, today can be a day of gladness. It can be a day of gladness for you. Observing Brian's baptism, it can be a day of gladness as you remember your own. Today, Brian will be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because we are speaking of the one and only gospel baptism, the one and only good news baptism that points us to the love of the Father, that points us to the grace of our Savior, that points us to the communion of the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, equal in power and glory, one glorious God to whom believers have been reconciled by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, to the glory of not any of our works that we have done, but to the glory of the grace of God, grace to unworthy sinners like us who have come before him simply saying, have mercy on us, we are sinners. But dear saints, you know this, you know that gladness with exceeding joy requires knowledge. There's no Christian gladness of heart without the glad reception of God's Word. Being baptized or 
as the case may be, remembering today your own baptism will be of no strength to your soul without faith. It will be of no strength to your soul without remembering and and believing the truth about baptism. Baptism can be an effective means for the strengthening of your soul's confidence. It can be an effective means for the strengthening of your soul's endurance with Christ. But this will happen only by the blessing of Christ. This will happen only by the working of the Holy Spirit in the soul of the one who by faith receives baptism. It's not because there's some kind of quality in the water. It's not because of any quality in the man who administers baptism. Therefore, a believing reception of baptism producing spiritual strength requires knowledge. It requires remembrance of the truth for the one who is baptized and for the others today who will use their own baptism as they remember it and use it as a, as a continuing and ongoing means of grace. So are you glad to be here today? Are you glad with the gospel? I want to ask you a second question, and this is what we'll spend our time with today, answering this question. The question is this, what is baptism? We're not going to cover everything that could be said about baptism in just this one sermon, but we can cover at least some of the fundamentals. In your bulletin, you'll notice from our Baptist Catechism, it's question 97 is printed there. You can find that and read along with me. Question 97 from the Baptist Catechism simply asks, what is baptism? Here's the answer. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of his giving up himself unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. For the sake of gospel gladness, let's answer the question, what is baptism? And if you'll give your careful consideration to these things, how will your heart not be full of rejoicing today? Let's answer it in four steps. Number one, baptism is an ordinance. Baptism is an ordinance. To put it simply, baptism is ordained by Christ. Baptism is ordained by Him. Baptism is His command. He has ordained it, he has decreed it, he has commanded that his disciples submit to baptism. It is not given by Christ as an option to his disciples. His disciples must obey his law. And his ordinance is that his disciples are to be baptized. We draw this from Matthew chapter 28. Let me read to you beginning at verse 16, which says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now when Jesus says that, he is making a very clear, undeniable, unmistakable statement of absolute dominion. All authority 
has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Christ is not waiting to be king. He is king. He is king in heaven. He is king on earth. And he exercises his absolute dominion, we know, by his word and spirit. He is the king, and he decrees the laws. He decrees the ordinances. He declares that which must be obeyed by his people. So he continues on by saying this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, that is to say, baptizing those who have been made disciples from those nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, that is to say, teaching those baptized disciples to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we say with Matthew at the end of the gospel, Amen. Christ, the King of heaven and earth, has decreed a law that his church must obey. His law is to make disciples, to preach the gospel to everybody, regardless of their nation. For example, Acts chapter 2, for example, Paul's mission to the Gentiles. The gospel is to preach to all regardless of where they are from, and by that to make them disciples, which is to say those who gladly receive the apostolic preaching, those who gladly receive the preaching of that gospel. And to them is to be offered baptism. It's the repenting and the believing disciples who are to be baptized in the name of the one true triune God. Baptism is a command. It is an ordinance. It is to be offered to those capable of demonstrating their submission to this king with personal repentance and faith. It is the disciples who are to be baptized. And disciples, as we know again from Acts 2 and many other places, are those who gladly receive the apostolic preaching. Brian is is not to be baptized today because someone else in his place professed his repentance and faith. Brian is to be baptized today upon his own profession, that he has been made a disciple of Christ. Brian is to be baptized today as evident upon his profession of faith, and this as evidenced by his glad, repenting, believing reception of the preaching of the gospel. So we begin, with, we begin with that point. This is not an option. It's not an option that Brian may or may not choose. It is an ordinance. But number two, let us add this to our answer. Number two, baptism is a New Testament ordinance. Baptism is a New Testament ordinance. It is not a repetition of an Old Covenant law. Old Covenant members were not given the law to be baptized. Baptism is a new ordinance, and it is for members of the New Covenant. And so then to define baptism, as we're doing a little bit today, to understand baptism, to to understand who should receive baptism, we must go to the New Covenant 
not to the old covenant. Now, did I just say that our obedience to a new covenant command has nothing to do at all with anything in the Old Testament? I did not say that. For in the Old Testament, we have revealed to us the law imprinted upon the human heart. We have this abiding moral law of God revealed, summarized in the form or outline of Ten Commandments, and it is in the second commandment where God requires us to receive and to observe and to keep pure and to completely keep every religious worship and ordinance as God has appointed in His Word. God regulates the worship that we offer to Him. We must not offer anything that He has not commanded. And Christ regulates the worship that we offer. Christ has appointed baptism. It's not appointed as an old covenant law. Isaiah, for example, was not required to be baptized. Moses was not required to be baptized. Very clearly in Matthew 28, Christ is appointing a law for, his, for the members of the new covenant. He's regulating the worship that we must offer to him. And we, go to the new co- we must go to the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant, to define baptism, understand it, to understand who is to receive it. To disobey any New Covenant law is to disobey the Second Commandment. So this will be a helpful foundation. It's an ordinance. It's a law which must be obeyed, and we specify that it is a New Testament. It is a New Covenant law. Therefore, we make our appeal to the terms and descriptions of the New Covenant in order to understand this New Covenant law. Therefore, point number three, baptism is to be unto the party baptized a sign. It is to be unto the party baptized a sign. It is to Brian today a sign. It's a symbol. Baptism today, this is not the sealing of Brian into the new covenant. It is a sign to Brian. Baptism is not the seal of the new covenant. It's, it's a sign. It's a symbol to the person who is being baptized. So why am I not going to call baptism the seal of the new covenant? Because this is the seal of the new covenant, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 22. There Paul says, For all of the promises of God, when we may think, all of, the, all of the law and prophets. All of the pro- promises of God in Christ are what? Maybe? No, they are yes. And in Christ they are all amen to the glory of God through us. Paul continues, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has a, and has a, anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A seal is given for the point of authenticating. It's given for the point of assuring. It's given for the point of guaranteeing something. We might think of something like placing a wax seal on a letter to confirm the contents where that seal has this image pressed upon it. It authenticates the contents. In the Old Covenant, 
There was a sealing, there was an authentication, there was a confirmation of old covenant membership, and this was done by a marking in the flesh, whereby it was authenticate, that membership was authenticated. But in the new covenant, as Paul specifies, our new covenant membership, new covenant members, we are not sealed, we are, our, our new covenant membership is not authenticated By any marking in the flesh, it is authenticated by the indwelling of the Spirit in our hearts. Baptism is not the confirmation of our new covenant membership. The gift of the Spirit of our hearts is the confirmation. The Spirit of God Himself, He is the authenticator to us of God's saving and preserving grace. From Ephesians chapter 1, 11, verses 11 through 14, we read this. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having, uh, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Who are the authenticated, sealed members of the new covenant? Well, Paul there specifies it's those who heard the word of truth. It's those who heard the gospel of salvation It's those who believed it. They believed it. What grace. How can your heart not already be filled with joy and gladness when we read of these things from God's Word? The sealing for our new covenant membership is not a mark in the flesh. It is not a sealing that is done by hands. It is by the indwelling of the Spirit in our hearts. One of our Reformed Baptist forefathers, Nehemiah Cox, said this. He said, a seal is for confirmation and assurance. And in this notion of a seal, there may be some respect to that visible mark and character which remained in the flesh of him that was circumcised. For we read not that any other ordinance, no, not baptism, is so called in Scripture, But in the New Testament, the sealing of believers is attributed to the Holy Ghost. Therefore, baptism is not, we will not speak of baptism as a seal, that is the indwelling of the Spirit in our hearts. Baptism, therefore, is a sign. It is something we can see that points us to something else. And the Lord has ordained two and only two visible signs, only two, for we remember the second commandment, He regulates the worship that we offer to Him and He has ordained two and only two symbolic acts which are approved by Him for us to include in our offering of worship to Him. And of course, those two are baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
But let's not move too fast past this point. Let's not move too quickly and begin asking, well, what is it that baptism is signing? What is it that baptism is symbolizing? Let's first ask this question, why does God give us signs? Why does God give us baptism in the Lord's Supper? Why does Christ command those? Why does Christ give us these two things that we can see? The Puritan Thomas Watson, he asked this question. Here's the way he put it. Thinking, wondering about this same thing, he said, Is not the Word of God sufficient to salvation? What need then is there of sacraments? In other words, are not the gospel promises written in Scripture enough? Right? Shouldn't that be enough? God said it. That should be enough for us. God said, In Christ our sins are forgiven. That should be enough. Why does he, in addition to those promises, give us baptism in the Lord's Supper? Is not the Word of God sufficient? Thomas Watson asked. What need then is there of sacraments? All right, God said it. We should believe it. And yet, he gives us, in addition to his promises, baptism in the Lord's Supper. Watson answers his own question by saying this. He says, We must not be wise above what is written. It is God's will that his church should have sacraments, and it is God's goodness thus to condescend to weak capacities. That's why we have baptism in the Lord's Supper. It's because we're weak. That's why the Lord gives them to us. It's because we are weak. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of the Lord because He is working tenderly and compassionately with us according to our weakness. The weakness or the insufficiency is not in any of our Lord's gospel promises. The weakness or insufficiency is not in His promise of justification. There's no weakness in His promise to us of the forgiveness of our sins or of adoption or of sanctification or of glory, the weakness or insufficiency is with our faith in those promises. The weakness is in the capacity of our faith to hold on to those promises that he's given us. That's where we're going to find insufficiency and weakness. We're weak in walking by faith. This is the weakness We are weak. We struggle in this way. We struggle day to day, do we not? In walking by faith in the unseen gospel spiritual realities. It's because of our weakness in our willingness. It's because of weakness in our ability or our capacities to believe His promises. It's for that reason that our Lord has condescended to that weakness and He has given us two things that we can actually see. Two signs, two symbols of unseen but very real promised gospel realities that we must believe. Now let me give you an example from the scripture of the Lord working tenderly, kindly, gently, patiently according to our weakness. In Genesis 22, you recall Abraham has offered his son, that offering was interrupted. Genesis 22 and verse 15 
says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. We, we hear the gospel promise. God is promising. He will send the seed. He will send the Son. And he's specifying here, he's reminding Abraham that he has sworn an oath to keep the promise to send the Son. This takes us back all the way to Genesis 15 when God first gave that promise to Abraham. Now, we know Abraham believed the promise, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and yet we also know that Abraham still struggled with weakness, as he would demonstrate quite obviously at various points in his life. He believed, but he still had unbelief. God gives the gospel promise to Abraham. He promises he will send the son. But then Abraham, he asked the Lord, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And we might, we might say, Abraham, God just, God just promised you that he will send the Son. That ought to be enough. How will, I, how will I know that I will inherit it? God could have told Abraham, Abraham, I just told you. Right? That's how you know. You have my word. You have my promise. But God didn't do that. And that's when we, we read then, where God told Abraham to take some animals, to divide some of them in half. And God presented this visible sign to Abraham whereby God himself passes through the split carcasses of the animals. It was a symbolic picture through which God was saying to Abraham, essentially, let What has happened to these animals happened to me, should I break my word to you. He was swearing an oath to Abraham in a very visually powerful way. God gave a promise. God then, in a very powerful visual way, swore an oath to keep the promise. Abraham believed the promise, but he was still struggling with Unbelief, therefore, God gave Abraham not one unbreakable word, but he gave Abraham two unbreakable words. Why? Because God was condescending and working with Abraham according to his weakness. How kind our Lord is, how patient, how gentle he is working with Abraham. Now, I'm interpreting Genesis in this way because this is how Hebrews 6 tells us to interpret it. Here are the words from Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18. Now, for gladness of heart, listen to what it says. God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Not one thing, but he gave two, that we might have strong consolation. Let me take the language from Hebrews 6, and I'm going to apply it to baptism, given 
that baptism is a sign. Given that baptism is a visible sign in addition to the gospel promise. It might sound like this. Our Lord and Savior determining to show more abundantly to us who are the inheritors of all that he has promised, to show more abundantly the immutability and infallibility of his decree to save all who put their faith in him, points us to his gospel promises of heavenly treasures that we can't see yet by giving us baptism. A visible symbol of some of those unseen treasures that he has promised so that we might be comforted, so that we might be strengthened, so that we might be refreshed in our souls by baptism. We who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. How kind. Observe Brian's baptism today and be astonished with how kindly and gently, patiently, tenderly our Lord works with us. He's given us gospel promises. He has assured us. He's given us the promise of so many things. Unseen heavenly treasures. But that we might be comforted. That our souls would be strengthened. Because he knows we're weak. Walking by faith in these unseen things. He gives us something that we can see. To strengthen us. To encourage us. Therefore, number four, baptism visually, physically symbolizes unseen spiritual realities. Baptism visually, physically symbolizes unseen spiritual realities. Again, Thomas Watson, he puts it this way, speaking of of baptism and the Lord's Supper, he says they are visible signs of invisible grace. Visible signs of of invisible grace. The promise of saving grace in Christ is an unbreakable promise. But our Savior condescends tenderly, compassionately to our weaknesses, and He provides us visible signs of gospel gifts that we can't see yet. How kind He is how gently He is working with us. Those of you who have been listening through the series, in the series through the Gospel of Luke, you remember in Luke 17, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom would come. And Jesus answered and said to them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is where? The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus says. And so, yes, we know. Yes, of course, one day the kingdom and the king will come with undeniable observation. But for now, Jesus says, the kingdom is within us. That is to say, the kingdom is coming with with our king by his word and spirit, working renovation in our souls. His kingdom is 
for now, characterized by unseen spiritual realities, and he has given two sacraments. He has given two visible signs to symbolize, to make visible in a symbolic way certain gifts of his invisible grace. Let me list four of those for you. Our fourth point here, baptism visually, physically symbolizes unseen spiritual realities. Let's list four of them. Number one, baptism is a visible sign of the unseen reality of our fellowship with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism symbolizes the unseen reality of our fellowship with Christ in his death, burial, and in his resurrection. From Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 3, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. We can see here that Paul is obviously speaking of unseen but very real, the very real spiritual reality of believers in Christ being united or spiritually joined to Christ in his death. He must be speaking of an unseen reality. An unseen spiritual reality. It has to be that way because we weren't there. None of us were there. None of us were there hanging on the cross, dying with Him. None of us were there with our our dead bodies placed into the grave with His dead body. Paul must be speaking of 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 something that we can't see, some kind of spiritual work that has taken place. Paul must be speaking then here of baptism as being given by the Lord to be a sign that symbolizes not a physical event or work that takes place upon us, but a spiritual event, a work that is accomplished upon us spiritually. Baptism presents a visible, symbolic picture of what the Spirit of God does with us in our conversion to Christ. And none of you saw this. And none of you felt this. But God assures you that it is true in His Word. Has He not just spoken it through His Apostle Paul? Has He not just promised this fellowship with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection? Has He not promised it? Yes, He has. In addition to the promise, he gives us something we can see that symbolizes, that portrays this unseen spiritual reality of us being united or spiritually joined to Christ 
in his death, burial, and resurrection. Consider this for the sake of gladness in your heart today. There was that old you. You remember the old you? If you were old enough when you were converted, perhaps this is easier for you to remember. You remember the old you? Pre-conversion, pre-regeneration. Do you remember the old you? You were alive in your body, but you were dead in your sins and trespasses. you remember the old you? You were not free from the power of sin. You were in bondage to it. You were a bound captive to the power of sin. Do you remember the old you? There was no way that that old you would ever be permitted before the throne of God with any welcome. The old you was under wrath, and that wrath was just. You remember the old you? The old you had to die. The old you had to die if you were to be liberated. Thus, the Spirit of God spiritually unites us not just to any death, but He unites us in our conversion to Christ only to the only worthy death, the death and burial of Christ, thus pictured and symbolized by the burial of the body under the water. The old regenerate you, and let your heart rejoice to consider this truth from God's Word here from Romans 6. The old regenerate you is crucified. The old regenerate, old unregenerate you is killed. The old unregenerate, dead in your sins and trespasses you is done away with so that sin's power is broken, so that sin's punishment might be done away with so that you should no longer be a slave of sin. The older you had to die. The Spirit unites all who are converted to Christ. He unites them to the death and to the burial of Christ. But then Paul continues by saying that there in Romans 6 that baptism pictures the unseen work of the Holy Spirit spiritually uniting us to Christ in His resurrection from the grave. Let your heart be glad when you consider this. It's not just that the old you is spiritually crucified and buried, but that there is a new you who is raised from the dead, having been set freed from that old captivity. There's a new liberated you. The old you in bondage to sin under the penalty... There's a new you, liberated, set free. Does that not bring gladness to your heart when you consider this? What baptism is symbolizing, what it's presenting to your eyes, portraying to you this unseen, amazing spiritual reality that's promised to us in God's Word. God assures us that this has taken place for those who have been converted to Christ. We can't see it. And we're weak. It's so difficult to walk by faith and not by sight. And we must do that. Observe how kindly and tenderly and gently our Savior is working with us for the sake of strengthening our souls, for the sake of our perseverance with Christ to give us this visible symbol to point us to this unseen spiritual reality. 
In Colossians chapter 2, here's how Paul speaks of it. Colossians 2 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul says that we are buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God. Those who were baptized there have demonstrated faith in the working of God. Paul goes on, who raised Him from the dead. So this is, this is not a physical burial. This is not a physical resurrection. And it's not because of some quality in the water. It's not because of some quality in the person who administers the baptism. Baptism must be a picture. It must be a symbol of a spiritual burial. It must be a symbol, a picture to us, a presentation of a spiritual putting away. And it must be to us a, spirit, a picture of a spiritual resurrection joined with Christ in His death, joined with Christ in His resurrection. Do we believe these things? Yes, we believe these things. God said it. But we're weak. We're weak. The Lord gives us a visible sign of this unseen grace. He gives us baptism to comfort us. He gives us baptism to reassure us. He gives us baptism to strengthen us. Secondly, baptism is a visible sign of the unseen reality of us being engrafted into Christ. It is a visible sign of the unseen reality of us being engrafted into Christ. It's a visible sign of the unseen reality of our spiritual union with Christ and thus of our new life in Him. In our conversion to Christ, the Spirit of God gives us a new principle or a new power of true life in the soul. We have newness of life. But it's not just any life. Let this this go down deep within your soul today. That what baptism is presenting to us as a picture is, is not that it's just the old you raised up and polished off a little bit. It is not that God just picks you up out of the dust and He brushes you. No, it's a, it's a new you. The, the old you has been crucified with Christ. The old you in bondage to sin. The old you under, under God's wrath. Put away. Put away forever. There's a new you. There's a new you. You are engrafted into Him who is alive from the grave. It's not just the same old life, maybe a little better. No, it's, it's a new you. You are a new creature in Christ. New creation. New creation making its intrusion into this world already. When a sinner is converted to Christ. As Paul said, that says there in Colossians 2, we are buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He is made alive together with Him. Because baptism is symbolizing our death, burial, and resurrection, or Christ, we have to say here, it's symbolizing our union with Him. It's, we, we are united 
to His power of true life. God assures us that this is true. We remember Paul speaking there in Romans 6. He said, we are baptized into Christ. It is not just that we have fellowship with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. It is that we have been joined unbreakably to Him. We are not united to mere events, and certainly we affirm that when we speak of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we are speaking of real historical events. We do not speak today of being united to mere events. We speak of being united to Him. We are branches engrafted into the true vine of true and everlasting life. It's not just that the old you has been crucified and buried and that there is a new you alive and liberated, but that you have been irrevocably, irreversibly raised to new life because the Spirit has joined you to the Savior and what God has joined together, let no man separate. Third, baptism is a sign of the unseen reality of the remission of sins. Consider and let your heart be glad today. Baptism is a sign of the unseen reality of the remission of sins. Does water wash away our sins? No, it does not. We've already read from Colossians 2 that this remission of sin comes to us by faith in the working of God. It is by faith in the working of God. That helps us to understand, for example, in Acts 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Peter must be speaking of baptism as a sign, a symbol of this unseen forgiveness of our sins. In Acts 22, Ananias, who was a devout man from Damascus, he spoke to Paul words of prophecy from the Lord, saying to Paul this, You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of of the Lord. Baptism does not suddenly change from being a symbol of our own spiritual death, burial, and resurrection, and of our union with Christ, only to then become the actual non-symbolic washing away of our sins. No, the cleansing of our sins, it isn't by water, is it? Isn't that good news? (laughs) The washing away of our sins isn't by water. It's by blood. It's by blood that our sins are washed away. It's by blood. Payment must be made. And the payment is death. Ananias told Paul to be baptized not by calling upon the water, but by calling upon and looking to the Lord. Baptism symbolizes a washing whereby the washing upon us and the washing over us of the water points us to the washing and the pouring upon us, the cleansing of sin and its punishment by the blood of the substitutionary offering, a benefit applied to us by the pouring out upon us of the Holy Spirit. 
Even David in the Old Covenant looked to this blood. In Psalm 51, David said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then David, in the same psalm, went on to say this. He said, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Now, what is hyssop? What is that? Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant and its branches were gathered together and tied into a brush. And that hyssop brush was dipped into the blood of the sacrifice. And then that brush was, that bloody end of the brush was used to sprinkle the blood on the altars. Do you hear what David is saying? To the Lord, wash me, purge me, forgive me, cleanse me of my sins by the blood. By the blood of a substitutionary offering made in my place. That should have been me. And it's not, wash me by this blood. Purge me with hyssop, he says, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. The water behind me is just Mansfield tap water. But baptism is given to us by our Savior, so kind, so patient, so gentle with us, as He works with us, condescending to work with us according to our weaknesses, to give us a picture of washing, to give us a picture of the washing away of sin, to point us to these unseen gospel realities. One of my favorite pictures of this in the Bible comes from Revelation chapter 7. At beginning at verse 11, it says this, All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, this is John speaking, I said to him, Sir, you know, so he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is enjoyed by those who have been washed by the blood. Oh, dear saints, observe, observe this baptism today and be pointed in your heart to the unseen reality of the working of the Holy Spirit, who by the love of the Father and by the grace of the Son 
takes the cleansing, washing, purifying benefits of the blood of the Lamb of God, and he washes and he cleanses and he purges and he purifies those who have put their faith in Christ. Baptism is a sign of something else. Baptism is a sign of the one baptized giving himself to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. In this way, the one who is baptized is making a declaration by means of this baptism. So far, baptism has been a declaration to us from God, and in this point we consider baptism as a declaration that Brian is about to make. Brian is about to, through the means of this visible symbol, a picture we can see, Brian is going to use this as a means to declare that he is giving himself up to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. He's devoting himself to God. Having been given the Spirit of God in our hearts, who has convicted us of our sin and misery, having been given the Spirit of God who has been poured out in our hearts, this Spirit of God who has renewed our will, who has persuaded and enabled us to embrace Christ by faith, the Spirit of God who has united us to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, the Spirit of God who has applied to us the benefits of redemption, we then... In light of all that, we are then to consider ourselves dead to sin. And we are then in light of that to consider ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. Having been raised from the burial of that old man to the life of the new man in Christ, we proclaim that we have been raised to a life of holiness. a life where we are enabled by the Spirit of God to more and more die unto sin and enabled by the Spirit more and more to live unto righteousness. This is what Brian is about to declare to you. And those of you who have been baptized in, this, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, this is the declaration that you made to live unto God through Jesus Christ a life of holiness. In fact, that's the reason for Paul speaking such in Romans 6. That's that's the main point he's making. He's making a point about sanctification. He's directing those believers in Romans 6 to remember their baptism. And why does Paul do that? He's directing them to remember their baptism for the point of convicting them and strengthening them to no longer live in their sins. Paul said there, Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also, you baptized disciples, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. 
And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Therefore, dear saints, observe this baptism and remember your own baptism for the sake of being reminded of these truths of new life in Christ and that for the sake of being strengthened for obedience. Paul says this again in Romans 6, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the ones slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? You're no longer in Christ. You are no longer a slave of sin. Present yourself as a slave of righteousness. We are called to obedience. We are called to a life of holiness. But as we pursue that, we rest ourselves not upon our own strength. For there is nothing that we have spoken of today when we have spoken of the gospel that has pointed us to the glory of our own strength. When we pursue obedience, we rest ourselves We rest ourselves upon Christ. It's not the glory of our death, burial, and resurrection. It's the glory of His. It is to that which we are united. We rest our confidence for salvation upon this, that we have been united to Christ. He is the one who is obedient. He is the Holy One whose benefits of redemption purchased by His blood have been applied to us by His Holy Spirit. We give ourselves to God to walk more and more in holiness, not so that God will finally forgive us because we are finally good enough. No. We give ourselves up to God through Jesus Christ because God has already cleansed us by the blood of the only worthy sacrifice. Therefore, we do this with confidence and we do this with hope. Dear saints, the throne of God was a throne of righteous wrath. The throne of God was a throne of righteous condemnation. And it remains so for all who are are not united to Christ. It remains so for all who are not shielded by Him. But in Christ, God declares His throne to be a throne of grace. Is Is it not grace upon grace, upon grace that is pictured to you in baptism. Let me conclude then with this final thought. There in Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching, Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Today, in the preaching of the word, this very same apostolic word has been delivered to you. The Lord, by the preaching of this gospel today, to you, He is giving you this same promise. Call upon Him. 
Come before him, and you will find him to be a merciful Savior. The gospel promises for you. Are we not among those who were afar off? Parents, give, the pro- give this promise to your children. The promise is true for them as well. If they will repent and believe this apostolic word, the promise is true. Christ will be merciful to them. Christ will forgive them of their sins. I exhort you with this same word that Peter spoke. Be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved from this perverse generation. Call upon the Lord. And you may say, you may say, well, I, I, the only thing that I can say if I were to call upon the Lord today, the only thing that I would be able to say is, Lord, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. I have, I have nothing to bring to him but, except that. Then bring that. And you will find him to be merciful. It's the only thing you have to bring. You have no works. You have no spiritual riches of your own. You have nothing to present to him for a bribe, for a payment. His grace isn't for sale. Come before him. I call upon you, be saved from this perverse generation. The gospel promise is true. It is always true. It is extended even in this very moment. In this very moment, the Lord is extending His gospel promise to you. Have you not called upon Him? Have you not repented and believed upon such a wonderful and amazing Savior? Call upon Him. Ask Him to have mercy upon such an undeserving sinner, and you will find Him to be just as faithful and merciful to you as He has been to so many already.